I invite you to turn this morning to the Word of God as it is found in 1 Corinthians 3. You'll find that on page 1212 in the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 3, I want to read the verses 1 through 9. And before I do so, I want to tell you why I've chosen this passage this morning. Today marks uh, 28 years since I first preached as an ordained minister of the gospel. I was ordained on July 28, 1995 by the Northeast Presbytery of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. The following Lord's Day, I uh, was in the pew and a minister of the presbytery who sadly is now out of the ministry because of marital infidelity, preached. And then the next Lord's Day, August 6, I preached. And the Lord Jesus, I want to testify to you this morning, has been a most wonderful and faithful master. He has been very kind and generous to me. He's been gracious, bearing with my numerous weaknesses, patient with my infelicities, and he has given me the wonderful privilege of preaching the inexhaustible riches of his name. I'm so humbled that the Lord called me to himself and then called me to the gospel ministry shortly after that, that he has blessed me with three congregations, first in Ontario, second in Scotland, and a third here in Alberta, and that he has given me a love for all of them and has given me a love for you as well, uh, so deep in our Lord Jesus with every desire uh, to be used by God uh, for your blessing and joy. Throughout the years of my ministry, around the ordination anniversary, I have preached from God's Word on a text that has some particular relevance to the Christian ministry. I noted uh, a few months ago that uh, Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish minister, did that as well. In fact, he preached his first text on the anniversary of every ordination. I haven't done that, but I have preached numerous times on a text that is applicable to the gospel ministry. And this morning, I chose, or this week, I chose to direct our attention to this passage, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, particularly the verses 5 through 9, but I'll begin reading at verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. 
For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Thus far the reading of God's Word. There were factions within the church of Christ in Corinth, divisions over the ministers of the gospel. Not divisions, I point out, because of the ministers of the gospel, but divisions within the congregation over ministers of the gospel. It appears that there were some within the congregation who had a preference for the ministry of one minister over the ministry of others. And so they would champion their favorite preacher. I follow Paul, some would say. Well, I follow Apollos, others would say. Well, I think more highly of Cephas, of Peter. And then the more spiritual ones said, well, I, I happen to follow Christ. And because of this division among the people of God, the Apostle Paul says that he could not address them as spiritual people. They were acting in a worldly manner, and they were exhibiting spiritual immaturity. And he reprimands them for that, for their jealousy and strife. And then he uses that occasion to launch into a description of what the Christian ministry is. And he does that in verses 5 through 9. And I want to direct your attention there this morning, not only for your sake, but also for my own sake. When I grew up, I had a minister who would periodically say within his sermons, now minister, remember that you're preaching to yourself as well. And I hope to do that this morning, to sit under the ministry of the Word, as I do each Lord's Day, and to hear what God has to say to all of us and to me as well. And I want to mention seven matters regarding the ministry of the gospel. The first thing that I want to point out to you is that the minister labors in God's field. You see, at the end of verse 9, the, the apostle gives two metaphors to describe the church. He says to the Corinthians, you are God's field, you are God's building. Now he's going to develop the building metaphor in verse 10 and onward, but in verses 5 through 9 he develops the agricultural metaphor as the church, as the field of God. You know your Bibles well enough to know that this is not an uncommon metaphor that the Lord uses. In Isaiah 5, for instance, the Uh, The Lord talks about uh, Israel as his vineyard that he planted and cares for. In Hebrews, or in uh, Hosea 10 verse 12, the the prophet says to uh, Israel, Sow for yourself righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And the agricultural metaphors carry into the New Testament as well. The Lord Jesus told the parable of the man who went out to sow the seed and the four soils upon which the seed was sown. The Apostle Paul encourages the Colossian Christians to bear fruit in every good work. And so it's a helpful thing to think of the church as the field of God. 
And that means a number of things. First of all, it means that the church is always under cultivation. There's always things happening in the church. There's always progress. The church can never be at rest. So either there's sowing of the seed or or there's the preparation for the next crop. There's either harvest or uh, matters of those concerns. But the church is always a place where God is at work. And within the church, as the seed of the gospel is sown, there should be an expectation of harvest. Of course, not every year is the harvest equally good, nor every year is the harvest equally bad. But within the church, Christ will be satisfied. He will have a harvest of souls for his own glory at the end of time. And if or since the church is God's field. It belongs to God. It is not my church. It is not your church. It is God's church. And because God is the owner of the church, he's committed to her blessing. He watches over, protects his church. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. And all who are in the church of God do well to remember that. The church is God's field. It belongs to him. He has purchased it with the blood of his son. And we ought to treat the church with the utmost respect and love and devotion. The minister labors in God's field. Secondly, notice that the ministers are called servants. This is how Paul begins this section. What then is Paulus? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believe. Now, it's sometimes thought that the ministers are the servants of the church, or that the ministers are the servants of the elders, that they are responsible and answer to people. And it's true that the elders have a particular responsibility as called by God to watch over the labors of all who are in leadership within the church and to give particular attention to the conduct and doctrine of the minister of the gospel. But the church and the elders of the church can never be the minister's master. That is taken up by one person and one person alone. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, ministers are servants of Christ. It is he who has called them into the ministry, and it is he who has set them apart through the church to the gospel ministry, and they answer to him alone. They take their marching orders from him. They must give an account to him for how they have carried out their ministry. Christ is the master of the minister who is Christ's servant. But precisely because the minister is the servant of Christ, the minister is also the servant of Christ's body. This is how the Apostle Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. He says that we as ministers, we preach Christ Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants, For Jesus' sake. 
And so the minister of the gospel is to be completely devoted to Christ in the first place, and then because of his devotion to Christ, to Christ's body. He must lay everything on the line for the blessing of the church of the Lord Jesus. He must be instant, in season and out of season, when it's convenient and inconvenient, when he's tired and overwhelmed, when he's harassed by Satan. He must give his energies, the best of his energies, to the church and serve them unstintingly for their good and for his master's glory. Ministers are servants. But then notice what else the apostle says here. Ministers are servants through whom you believed. And so ministers are instruments as well. God in his infinite wisdom has determined that people would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through the ministry of sinful men. One plants, Paul says, another waters. So ministers are indispensable ordinarily in the preaching of the gospel as the means that God uses to bring sinners out of darkness into light, out of bondage and into liberty, from the dominion of darkness and of Satan to the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this hasn't always been understood well. In the 1700s, William Carey, the great Baptist missionary, who is considered the father of modern missions, he was pleading with his fellow missionaries that there was this obligation, this holy obligation to send men to the foreign fields because thousands and millions of people were dying without hope and without God and without Christ in this world. And as he was urging his fellow ministers, one elderly minister stood up and said, Young man, sit down, sit down. You are an enthusiast. If God means to convert the world, he will do so without consulting you or me. But the old man was wrong, and William Carey knew he was wrong. That when God is determined to convert the world, to convert the heathen, and to bring them to subjection to Jesus Christ, he does actually consult the church. And he uses the ministers of the gospel as the instruments, the tools, the agents through which people are brought to faith in Christ. And so William Carey wrote this 87-page essay entitled, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. William Carey knew the Great Commission, that Christ had sent his church into the nations to be the instrument of his grace and salvation. William Carey had read Romans 14, that whoever calls upon the name, Romans 10 rather, verse 14, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how are they going to call on the name of the Lord unless someone preaches to them? And how are they going to be preached to unless someone sends men 
out into the field of God's grace to labor there for a harvest of souls. Ministers of the gospel are instruments of God's grace. But then I want you to notice what he says next in verse 7. Ministers are instruments, indispensable. The what, uh, the means that God uses for the blessing of the nations. But then he goes on to say that ministers are nothing. They're not anything. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So yes, ministers are instruments. They're tools. They're agents. They plant. They water. They harvest. But that's all they do. Only God gives a growth. Paul is is so convinced of that that he says it twice at the end of verse 6 and then again at the end of verse 7 in quick succession. It is God who gives the growth. It's completely beyond human ability to do that. I mean, humans are able to preach the Word, to raise their voices, to speak, to read the Scriptures, and to explain them. But there's no way that humans can can ever penetrate the human heart and open deaf ears and and blind eyes so that people hear the voice of the Lord Jesus and, and see His grandeur and their hearts are opened and receptive to receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not something a human can do. I mean, we can't even do it in our own hearts, let alone in the hearts of anyone else. We can't even make ourselves. It is God who makes us, and it is God who remakes us, and only God who remakes us. And so if salvation depended upon humanity, there would be no salvation, but it doesn't. Already in eternity, amongst the members of the Trinity, there was this holy conspiracy to save sinners, And it was God the Father who had chosen them. And it was Christ who was appointed by God the Father to to go to earth and to be the sacrifice, to give himself on the cross for sinners. And it was God the Holy Spirit who was commissioned to to work in the hearts of sinners and, and to bring them into union with Jesus Christ so that all the glory would go to God, as Paul says in Ephesians 1 to the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of His glory, to the the praise of His glorious grace. Humans are nothing. We contribute nothing. We are instruments indeed that God uses. But there's no way that humans can take any credit at all. The gospel ministry is not for self-promotion. It is not to exhibit gifts. It is not to draw attention to the minister but it is to draw attention to the glory of the triune God. Humans and ministers are nothing. They're not anything. God is all. As the aged William Carey was lying on his deathbed at the age of 72, one of his friends visited him and recounted for him all his accomplishments as a missionary, and and they were quite considerable. 
six translations of the whole Bible into foreign languages, 30 translations of the New Testament into different languages. And as uh, Carrie was lying there in bed, he feebly said to the man, Friend, you have been speaking much of William Carey. But after I am gone, say nothing of William Carey, but speak only of William Carey's Savior. That's the attitude of all faithful gospel ministers. It's not about us. It's not about my ministry or my gifts, my contributions, my preaching. It's all about God and His glory and His condescending love and His grace and mercy to sinners. Ministers are nothing. Fifthly, Paul says in verse 5 that ministers have their labors assigned to them. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. Ministers do not get to choose their sphere of labor. If they did, they might choose a field that has fewer problems or different problems, or that has more rural people or has more urban people, or a congregation that is smaller, or a congregation that is more learned. But we don't get to decide those things. The Lord Christ, the Master, He determines where ministers go and how long they serve before they get another assignment. And they are to be faithful where the Lord assigned them, not where they would prefer to be. And this, of course, is, is not only true of ministers. This is true of all of us, that our places of service are where God has put us. And, and sometimes you might have preferences to be in a different calling or in a different place than you currently are, but, but this is where God has you. And it's particularly true of the ministers. Ministers should not determine where they serve according to their own preferences, nor are they to serve according to the preferences of their wives or of their children. All that is irrelevant at the end of the day because Christ assigns where his ministers serve. And sometimes he assigns them in fields that are full of thorns and thistles, fields that are wearisome, where there appears to be no progress whatsoever. William Carey, again, to refer to him, he labored six years in India before he saw his first convert. How discouraging that must have been, how frustrating to labor so long and so hard with no apparent fruit. But that's where the Lord Christ had sent him. God assigns to ministers where they are to serve. Sixthly, ministers are fellow workers. So what Paul says in verse 9, we are God's fellow workers, and so we have the exalted title of being a fellow worker of God. It's quite an impressive thing if you think about it, that God invites us to labor alongside Him for the glory of His name. But It's not only that we are fellow workers with God, but ministers are fellow workers with one another. And this was particularly important here, where 
Paul had to deal with divisions and factions in the church, people preferring one ministry over another ministry. And Paul says, what is Paul or what is Apollos? It doesn't really matter who we are. But as ministers, we are fellow workers. And there's no room within the church of Christ for one man up ship or comparing yourself to other ministers or despising other ministers because they don't have the gifts you have or envying other ministers because they have gifts that I don't have. All of that is out of place. We are fellow workers. We serve together. One person plants, another harvests, another waters. One has strengths in this area, another has strengths in that area. But that's how God has designed the church, so that her ministers work together for the common good with the goal of building up the church of Christ and to have the field of God produce a harvest. There's no room for jealousy or or envy amongst the ministers of the gospel. The Scottish missionary, or minister rather, Robert Murray McShane was sent by his church. This is early 1800s. He was sent by his church to to, uh, investigate whether they could establish a mission to the Jews in Palestine. And so he was gone for quite a number of months it's no way for him just to hop on an airplane at that time and fly over to Jerusalem. So it was quite an arduous journey, but they assigned William C. Burns to fill the pulpit while Robert Murray McShane was gone. And when Burns preached for those months of McShane's absence, God the Holy Spirit came down with power and there was a revival in that church, and, and hundreds of people were brought out of darkness into light to confess the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And there was some concern that when McShane came back, there would be some jealousy and, and envy and rivalry amongst him and, um, and Burns, but also within the church. But as McShane's biographer said, McShane had received from the Lord a holy disinterestedness that suppressed every feeling of envy. He could sincerely say, I have no desire but the salvation of my people by whatever instrument. And that's the attitude that ministers should have. Whether God gives success where they are, or no success, withholds it from them and grants it to another brother. We ought to rejoice together in the gifts that God gives, the strengths of ministry, and the success of ministry wherever God chooses to give that. Ministers are fellow workers who need one another to encourage each other, to spur one another on, to rebuke each other, to challenge each other, but they are not to work with envy and rivalry. They are fellow workers. And then the final thing I want to point out from this passage is that ministers are rewarded. Verse 8, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. 
Now, there's a couple of points that are so encouraging here for ministers of the gospel, but for all of us. First, God will reward your labors. He is no one's debtor. You never lose out on giving yourself for God's glory. He will always remember your acts of kindness that you've shown to others and to Him in your day-to-day life. And that's so important for the ministers of the gospel in particular. I remember once in my first congregation how we had this young man who showed some interest in the gospel, and we would have him over every Friday evening for dinner, and then I would uh, take him to my study, and we would study together the book of Romans. And we poured ourselves into this young man, and then all of a sudden he didn't show up anymore, never, never heard from him again. He gave us a, uh, a wine bottle opener, and so we still use it and think of him occasionally, but, but he went into our life, we ministered to him, and then he went out. And you think, that seems like a waste of time. Accomplished nothing. Well, the Lord remembers that, and the Lord promises that he will reward those efforts with his blessing, either in this life or in the life to come. But notice what Paul says. He will receive his wages according to his labor, not according to his successes, but according to his labor. Now, of course, it has to be that way. If, if conversion is the work of God, well, then there's no way that any human could be rewarded for the conversion of sinners. So God doesn't reward ministers only if the churches grow or missionaries only if people come out of paganism into into the Christian faith. No, he rewards labors, those who are diligent in praying and preaching and discipling and evangelizing. He will bless them. He will reward them for their efforts, not only if those efforts lead to a harvest. And that's true for all of us. You just need to be faithful serving the Lord. You just need to call or to to be faithful to what He has called you to be. I think about elders as they, they make family visits, and sometimes they identify sinful patterns in people's lives, and they they urge these people to, to repent and to turn from their sins and to be restored to Christ and His church. But those pleas end up on deaf ears. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility as an elder is to be faithful. Your responsibility as a father and mother with your children is to be faithful. You you leave the results with the Lord, and He will reward your faithfulness, not your fruitfulness. Of course, that, that doesn't mean that we're oblivious to fruitfulness or that we don't think of how we could be more effective in our conversations or as ministers in preaching and teaching and discipling. We're always examining those things because we want to be not only faithful, but we want to be as fruitful as we possibly can to gather as many of God's people together in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reward is based not on fruitfulness, but on faithfulness. He will receive his wages according to his labor. So here the Apostle Paul 
in the midst of controversy within the Corinthian church, outlines the biblical understanding of the nature and calling of the Christian minister. And having been a minister of the gospel for 28 years, I commend this calling to you young men and to you boys. As you think about how you might serve the Lord Jesus, as I said, the Lord Jesus has been a very gracious and generous master. He has never hurt me or harmed me. He has never been cruel or unkind. And to be his instruments for the glory of his name, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ is a, is a calling that is unparalleled. As uh, many, I think it was Spurgeon would say, he said, I would not stoop, as a minister of the gospel, I would not stoop to become a king. And so pray that God might give you insight, that he might give you a weight, a burden for gospel ministry that he might equip you and shape you and challenge you and change you so that you might be fit instruments for his glory. And if he doesn't call you to the gospel ministry, that's possible as well. But then serve the Lord faithfully where you are. Have a concern for the advance of the gospel among the nations and devote your resources for the magnification of the name of Christ within his church and in the world. And then I urge all of you to join me in praying for all gospel ministers, that they would be faithful, but for the gospel ministers at Trinity in particular. For me, I feel increasingly the weight of the ministry and my own weakness and inability to carry it out as I ought. And then pray for Michael as well as he prepares to be set apart as an ambassador of Christ for the glory and honor of our triune God. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and loving Father in heaven, we thank you that you have chosen in your infinite wisdom to use sinful men to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ so that the glory would not go to man but would go to you alone. And we pray that you would bless the ministry of your word in this congregation and amongst all the congregations of Christ throughout the world, that ministers of the gospel would be faithful, they'd be servants, that they would understand themselves to be nothing, that they would labor where they have been assigned, laboring alongside other ministers in the confidence that you will bless their efforts and that you will reward them for their labors. We pray that you would raise up more men to become ministers of Christ, men and women to go as missionaries amongst uh, the nations, so that all those our Lord Jesus has been given, all those for whom our Lord Jesus has shed his blood, might hear his wonderful voice and come to him for eternal life. We long, O oh God, for the day when the church is complete and when we will see the Lord Jesus in all of his resplendent glory and seeing him be like him forever. Hear us, our gracious God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.